Well, that was marvelous. After a two-year absence, what a joy it is to have uh, the voices of our choir uh, singing praise to God, leading us in worship. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, please open it to Hebrews chapter 2. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. Um, You'll find the text on the back of the notes if you don't have a Bible. And while you turn there, um, I ask you to consider a question. Why was it that Jesus had to become like us? It may, may not be a question you readily would think of. But at the Incarnation, at Christmas, we celebrate the glorious truth that the Word became flesh. This is a cardinal truth of our faith. First John, he writes that whoever denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The, the earliest heresies about Jesus were not the denial of his deity. I'm guessing that when you were living with people who saw his mighty miracles, they were more easily sold on his deity, but they denied the humanity. And so first John makes it clear that the humanity of Jesus is a crucial doctrine. And our text this morning, which we'll look at this Sunday and next Sunday, is one of the few passages I can think of that speaks of the necessity of Jesus becoming human. You see it there in verse um, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Greek behind it, it was necessary. It was not optional. So why did Jesus have to become human to accomplish his mission? What is the significance of that? The answer given in our passage this morning is striking. Um, Your first blank, Jesus became human that he might die for us. I'd like to read verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's a word of prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to see um, the necessity and the glory of the Word becoming flesh, of your Son taking on our weakness, being made like us in every respect, yet without sin. I pray that we would uh, rejoice for the right reasons at the Incarnation. And at this time of year when we draw our attention to it, I pray that you would... um, Help us to see the glory that is veiled there. In Jesus' name, amen. So the flow of this passage is 
teaching us why Jesus had to take on flesh, why he had to become like us. And the purpose is given in two what's called subjunctive statements. Subjunctive is a, a grammatical category. It possibility, what might happen, so that something might happen. You see it there in verse 14, that through death he might destroy. And you see it in verse 17, so that he might become. Well, those are the two purpose statements that the author of Hebrews ties to the incarnation. We're going to look at the first one this morning. They're really tied together. They're really tied together. The second point we'll look at next Sunday, that he might become our high priest. But Jesus enters into his priesthood precisely through his death and resurrection. So it's not separated. The the, the reality that's amazing when we think of God in a manger, when we think of the creator of the universe in a stall, the peasant woman, is that Jesus needed, it was necessary for God's plan to to take on flesh so that he could die. So even there in the cradle, we're looking at a cross. Even as Mary brought Jesus to the temple, she was told a a spear will pierce your side. We we understand this, this birth is a means to an end. And Golgotha, is that end. But I want to look at three subpoints under this first statement he, that he might die for us to look at briefly in our time this morning. The first is that by becoming human, Jesus didn't simply appear human. He didn't put on a nurse suit. He became and he persists. He still is human even as he is divine. He identifies with the brothers that God gave to him. Now here I've got to sort of actually work backwards a little bit because our passage begins in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Who are these children? Well, they're referenced back a few verses earlier. Go back with me to verse 10 of chapter 2. I know this is cheating, but it's okay. We'll, we'll go back. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom All things exist. I mean, there's a massive statement. All things were made for Jesus. All things were made by Jesus. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So there's many, um, many sons. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And a quote of Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I have put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So we've got brothers and we've got children. And the rationale is this. God has given us to Christ as brothers and sisters. Radical truth. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, says Romans chapter 8, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, Jesus takes on flesh that he can die for us, and he is, in doing that, identifying with his 
brothers and sisters, God's children, referenced here in this passage. We see that he and they are sanctified by one father. The ESV has source. But the idea is, by identifying with us, by us being identified with him, he is sanctified, and the the idea of sanctified is to set apart. Jesus is sanctified through suffering ultimately on the cross. He is ultimately set apart in his death on the cross. And we, in him, as he stands in our stead, as he dies our death, as he bears our sins, we are sanctified in him as well. There's a, a union, a unity. And Jesus taking on flesh in part enables that unity. He is equipped and capable of uniting with us in that way, in a way that, look at verse 16, he is not and does not for angels. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So Jesus takes on flesh so that he can die for us, and in doing so, he identifies with and is conformed to the children, the brothers that God has given to him. He and they are sanctified by the same Father. And then we get this amazing statement here. Therefore, he prizes them. Therefore, he prizes them. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy them. But look back at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all of the same source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is, I think, Lytotes. When you say something positive by saying the negative, there were not a few people there. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. I think it means he's proud, he's, he loves, he prizes, is my blank here, us. Which is a remarkable statement. Because the contrast between the Lord Jesus Christ and us could not be greater, could it not? The Father gives us to him, and you might be tempted to think, I don't want, I wouldn't want that given to me. (laughs) But because we are sanctified from the Father, and because the Father has given us to him, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Instead, rather, he stands for us and he loves us. Turning your Bibles to John 17. I've got to move quickly here, but whatever we don't finish this week, we'll finish next week. John chapter 17, where this picture of us being given to the Son that he might redeem us is is made very clear. In John 17, Jesus is in the garden praying on the night before the crucifixion. And first, in the first five verses, he prays for himself. Then, starting in verse 6, All the way through 19, he prays for those the Father has given him. And then in 20 through 26, he prays for all of his sheep. But just look at verses 6 through 11. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They've kept your word. Now they know that Everything that you have given me is from you, and I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. 
I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which I have, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As best as I can understand God's plan of salvation, in eternity past, the Father determined to make a love gift to his Son of a redeemed people, and he gives them to the Son on condition that the Son, in fact, redeemed them. And for this reason, Christ loves us. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters because we are the love gift from his Father to him, and he gladly dies for us and identifies with us and takes on flesh. So Jesus takes on flesh in order that he might die for us, And in order to die for us, he must identify with us. He takes on flesh to identify with us that he might die. Second, point B, that through death, his death, he destroys the devil. Through death, he destroys the devil. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus first takes on flesh and blood to identify with us that he might die on our behalf. He takes on flesh and blood that through his death, he can destroy the devil. Destroy the devil. How, How does that happen? First, Jesus' death renders Satan powerless. Elsewhere in the Bible, Satan is called the God of this world. We saw in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us were held captive to him under his sway. And through Jesus' death on the cross, you and I might be freed from that captivity. He renders Satan powerless. John 16.11, John writes this, The ruler of this world is judged. And in 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus takes on flesh and is born. He might die for us and in dying destroy the devil, our adversary. Point number two here, Jesus' death guarantees Satan's defeat. Jesus' death guarantees Satan's defeat defeat. Now ultimately the weapon that Satan has is the law, sin. We are born captives to it. And our greatest threat and danger is our slavery to and our committing of sin. And on the cross Jesus renders that powerless and null. Our debt is paid. And in his resurrection, Satan is defeated. Jesus' death guarantees Satan's defeat. And here's the, the rationale. Jesus takes on flesh so that he can die for us and he will rise again. And by virtue of doing this, the Father glorifies him. This is the logic of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus first descends down. He humbles himself. He clothes his glory. He dies on a cross and therefore God highly exalts him. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So so here's the rationale. Jesus is most glorified by his submission and obedience to his Father's will, dying on the cross for our sins, which is the basis for which the Father exalts him and gives him the name above every name. Jesus could only do that through his death, and he could only die by taking on mortality and flesh and blood. Because it is the basis of that exaltation that Jesus returns in Revelation 19 with Lord of Lords and King of Kings written on the inside of his thigh. And on that basis, he defeats the God of this world ultimately and finally. All of that made possible through his death on the cross. So, so the incarnation is all about a cross. The incarnation, the birth in the manger, is all about the Son of God taking on flesh so that for his people, for his brothers and sisters, he might die for them. And through that death and resurrection, be exalted, disarm, and destroy the devil. That's why Jesus had to become like us. Point C, through his death, he frees us from slavery. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So again, to reiterate, Jesus took on flesh. He had to be made like us so that he could die on our behalf. And in dying on our behalf, he identifies with us, his people. He's our substitute. In dying on our behalf, he defeats Satan. And in dying on our behalf, he frees and delivers us from slavery. Well, slavery to what? To fear of death. Through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Death is unnatural. Every time I do a funeral, I, I make a point of this. The part of us that makes us not want to think about death, the part of us that doesn't like going to funerals, there's something right about that. It is unnatural. Jesus wept the tomb of Lazarus, even knowing that he would soon call forth his friend. Because death is not right. It's alien. And it was no part of God's good creation. And each and every one of us born into this world is afraid of death. People don't like to talk this way, but we we pretend we'll never die. But we all know that we're headed for our our own funeral. We're, We're all, there's a day appointed where we will die. And that fear drives us. I mean, the simple fact of what energy we put into not thinking about it. Changing the topic. The the lengths we will go to to avoid looking at this truth in the face indicates just what a hold it has over us. From the day you're born, you begin dying. Your body is weaker. It, It breaks down. I'm not as strong as I used to be. I don't have as much hair as I used to have. And all these are marks and reminders that I'm headed for a 
pine box as well the Lord tarries and that knowledge works on us death is is we only die because we have all sinned death is really an unmistakable signpost that something is wrong we're not to look at death and think well that's just the way things work that's just the cycle of life no, we're supposed to look at death and recognize something is terribly wrong and the something is me. The something is you. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God told the man and the woman in the garden, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Death enters the world through sin. Romans five, twelve, says this, and therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason why all men are mortal, the reason why all mankind dies is because all of mankind sins and sins and sins and sins. And so part of the reason why death and fear of death has such a hold over us is we know what it's tied to. We know, however much we tell ourselves we're good people and we try really hard, we're better than the next guy, that our looming death is irrefutable proof that we're not good people, that we didn't try as hard as we could, that we are corrupt and we are under a judgment from God for our sin. And that knowledge is not happy. We fear death. We only die because all have sinned. And yet Jesus' death frees us from this. How so? Well, when the New Testament speaks of Jesus' death, frequently it has in view both his death and resurrection, his entire passion. I think that's the rationale here. Because Jesus' resurrection, your next blank here, his resurrection ensures our resurrection. See, Jesus tastes death for us, and even though we will still die if the Lord tarries, Death will not be the end for us. Our bodies will be raised. It's not just that our souls and spirits go off to be with the Lord, but the Bible teaches that literal, physical resurrection, the reunification of body and soul. And in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking on this theme, Paul writes this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection ensures our resurrection. Your body may well die if the Lord tarries. But your body will be raised incorruptible. Jesus' death and his resurrection breaks us free from that fear. But ultimately, physical death is terrifying because it pictures and points to the second death. Point two, to the fear of judgment and the second death. Physical death is an unmistakable signpost and marker of the judgment to come and the second death that awaits those under the condemnation of sin. The reason why you and I enter this world and there's a dread of death is because after death comes judgment and we all know we're guilty. The reason, track this back, the reason Jesus had to take on flesh 
was so that he could identify with his people, die on their behalf, bear their sins in his body on the cross, and by doing so, defeat the devil, by doing so, free them from fear of death. And the only meaningful way we can be freed from that fear is if we don't have to fear that judgment to come, which is ultimately what Jesus accomplishes. We just read that the sting of death is the law. So to put it another way, why did Jesus have to become flesh? Jesus had to become flesh so that he could identify with us. Jesus had to become flesh so he could die in our stead. And he had to die in our stead so that he could satisfy the requirements of the law. This, this baby pictured on cards, stained glass windows, has become human that he might die. And he dies that he might take away our guilt and shame, take away our fear of judgment. He dies so that he can truly not be ashamed of us because we've been cleansed. Jesus' death on our behalf satisfies the law. That, that's why Jesus had to be made human. If Jesus did not become human, he could not die. If Jesus did not become human, he could not identify with us, be our substitute. If Jesus did not become human, he could not defeat Satan in the way that he did on the cross through death, and we would never be freed from fear of death and the judgment to come. This is the meaning of Christmas. It may sound kind of morbid, but this, this is where the New Testament draws our attention to. Look, here is the proof of God's love that he sent his son to die. He sent his son into this world clothed as we are in flesh, made in every way like us. And his mission is to die for us. For this reason, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's why the incarnation was necessary. That's why this is such a big deal. Because we now have a substitute. We have an atoning sacrifice. We can have the fear of death removed from us, the fear of judgment removed from us. We can have a great God, Savior, and High Priest who is not ashamed of us. And all of this, of course, comes to those who have turned to Him and put their faith and trust in Him. There's so many new faces here this morning. I would just encourage you that the Christmas, the, the, the incarnation, the birth of the Son of God is God's announcement to the world that he will forgive you. He would be at peace with you. He has sent his Son that he might not be ashamed of you. In, in this passage, it talks about the Son not being ashamed to call them brothers. A little later in Hebrews chapter 10, I mean 11, sorry, it speaks of God as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And because of our sin, because of our corruption, many of us do feel deep-seated shame to which the world would say, don't, don't feel shame to be proud. No, the Bible would say feel shame to the degree that it drives you to the Redeemer, to the degree that it drives you to the one who can take your shame from you. To those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who are hoping for a better country. God is not ashamed to be called your God. He is not ashamed to count you as brothers and sisters. All that made possible through the birth of the Son of God in Bethlehem. Let me close with a word of prayer and we'll move to a time of fellowship. Lord God, 
we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he so identified with us that he might die on our behalf as our substitute. And in doing so, he would free us from bondage, defeat the devil, satisfy the demands of the law. We delight to know that you are not ashamed of us, but that in Christ we are beloved. In Christ, you prize us. There is the apple of your eye. Not because of our own merit and standing, but because he took on flesh. He entered this world. He died on our behalf for sin. Lord God, what good news is this? In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.